Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is, it's Disney's birthday. In fact, it is Disney's 100th birthday. Now, for all of you who listen to this regularly, earlier in 2023, I did another episode about a major movie studio's 100th birthday, and that happened to be Warner Brothers. So it's remarkable that these two hugely influential film companies that have won dozens of Oscars between them, that have rewritten cinema, and as I said with the Warner Brothers one, this is a situation where you've got an actual bit of pop culture, in this case largely animation is what it's known for, but I'll be talking about some of its live-action output too, has absolutely influenced pop culture and also history as well. Let's get on with this one, because there's going to be... This is a roller coaster. There's going to be real highs and real lows. And like I said, I'm not going to start doing an analogy going, and the Walt Disney Company's influence goes all the way back to ancient Egypt. No, it's, that's just not there. I'm not going to be ridiculous or sort of insult your intelligence on any of this stuff. But the stories of last time Warner Brothers, this time Disney, it absolutely shows you the evolution of the film industry. You know, over an entire century, animation over an entire century. I did a whole other episode about animation. So if it isn't in this one, I do a lot more about it in that episode. So, you know, shout out to a couple of other episodes. You don't have to listen to these in any kind of order. But yeah, sometimes I cover similar territory in different podcast episodes, but go off in different directions. Okay, so I hope you enjoy this one. Walter... Elias Disney was born in Chicago, 1901, and he sadly died in Burbank, California in 1966. He was 65 and he died of lung cancer. This is sad, but it's also unsurprising. There are lots of footage of him smoking, just casually smoking. Indeed, and I love this fact, Disney has a habit of rewriting history, sometimes quite literally in some of their movies, and in this case, actually, their key founder, key creative founder. Now, Roy Disney was there as well, and it is worth pointing out that it was originally called the Disney Brothers Studio. That's Walt and Roy together, and Roy lived until 1971, so he lasted longer than his brother. But it was no doubt that... Walt was the creative genius behind it all. However, as I said, heavy smoker, rewriting history, and so a 
Apparently, in Disneyland's themselves, whenever they use footage, they have digitally removed all of the cigarettes. And so, there are sort of some weird pictures, because he had a cigarette between his first and second fingers, and he was pointing to something, which makes sense if you're holding a cigarette. But this got turned into something that just is a lie. It's the Disney point, according to the official Disney lore, if you like, is Walt had a habit of pointing with two fingers. No, he didn't. Well, I mean, technically he did, but the reason why he did that wasn't a funny quirk. It's because he had a cigarette between those two fingers. But nowadays, Disney employees are told to point in the kind of Walt way, but obviously without holding a cigarette in their hands. So, Already, we've got a little bit of how Disney can play fast and loose with reality. What's interesting is Walt Disney is an incredibly important person for the Academy Awards, you know, the Oscars. He has won 22 Oscars as a named individual, rather than collective groups or anything like that, from a total of 59 nominations. That is more than anyone else in the history of the Academy Awards. So... Whatever you may think of Disney, it does produce quality and has done so, I'm not going to say consistently, because there's some real highs and lows in this story, but definitely over the decades, every time you think Disney's lost it, they come back again. And like I said with Warner Brothers, and it is interesting that in 2023, their 100th anniversary, they've had some serious flops. Perhaps the most notable one was in the summer where you got the Flash movie, which they had spent nearly $300 million on, and it even brought back Michael Keaton as Batman. Yeah. I'm Batman. And there was a lot of initial buzz. This seemed to have been potentially a hot film that absolutely underperformed at the box office. And that's not even including Shazam that was earlier in the year. The whole DCEU has been largely a financial disaster for Warner Brothers. But Disney hasn't been having a great 2023 either. More on that as I go through things a bit more chronologically. But hey, I'm just going to start off now by saying this is a weird quirk. Back in 1989, you have the first Michael Keaton Batman film. So over 30 years later, we finally see Michael Keaton again, although he did do Batman Returns in the early 90s. But anyway, the point is we've been waiting a long time to see Michael Keaton back in the cowl, even though he's now in his 70s. But hey, for the people who saw it, they got a little smile out of that. And it's, it's lovely and wonderful. Just because a movie underperforms doesn't make it bad. And just because it makes a load of money doesn't make it good either. It's just purely the financial success of the project. And most people who saw The Flash went, it's a pretty good superhero movie. It just didn't capture people's imagination. And fundamentally, this is show business. And the emphasis is on the second word business, okay? There is no point making a load of movies that lose money. You want people to like them, but you really want people to go and see them. And so in the case of The Flash, that's an example of the people who saw it liked it, but not enough people went to see it. However, Batman 1989, as it's become known, because there's so many other Batman variations, that was the second biggest film of 1989. The biggest film of 1989 was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, obviously starring Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones. And yet, 
In 2023, we get the fifth and final Harrison Ford Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. Again, I've done a whole episode on that one. But again, this is a movie that has underperformed. Outright flops a little hard. I mean, flop is when you're just wildly off. Again, the problem here was a ridiculously high budget. Interestingly, for the Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the fourth and largely seen as the worst Indiana Jones, Harrison Ford hadn't put on the fedora for like 25 years, but in 2008, there he is in the movie as an older man. But the thing is, he got paid $65 million to play Indy a fourth time. This time round, just to make things work financially, he took a massive pay cut, but he was still paid $25 million. And they didn't use Lawrence Kasdan or George Lucas or Steven Spielberg. All these sorts of people would have been extremely expensive to be used in the movie. So if you like, they cut things down and they spent a lot of money. And, and again, it's a well-received. Like The Flash, it was actually well-received. But when your budget is close to $300 million, and then you've got to add the actual advertising costs on top of that, this thing has to be a billion dollar hitter for it to work and it just didn't get anywhere near there it's been a year of very large and underwhelming movies fast x did a whole episode on the fast franchise as well you can see where i am sticking these out because these are major franchises but again that film cost close to 350 million to make and so whereas globally it did okay you know, it grossed over 600 million, but that's not enough for it to turn a profit, at least in theatrical release. I'm sure all of these films, probably not Flash, it's so far off, it's never going to get there. But when you include merchandising, movie tie-ins, whenever you see a movie on an airplane, that airline has paid for that movie. So there's lots of residuals, money you earn from other revenue sources. And believe me, when it comes to Disney, they are masters of it. 2023 has actually been the year of a lot of big budget things underperforming which has not been great for things like warner brothers and things like disney believe me we'll go into that later i'm nearly 10 minutes into this and all i've managed to tell you is that walt disney smokes okay <laughs> thank you for bearing with me right so as i said its actual birthday is on october 16th 2023 and it was originally called Disney Brothers Studios. It had various different names over the decades, but it became the Walt Disney Company in 1986. And ever since then, it's been known as the Walt Disney Company, and I'm pretty sure that's what it's going to be called moving forwards. First big hit for the Disney Brothers Studio, they started off in animation. For years, Disney was synonymous with animation. And what they started off with is lots of shorts. That was what the popular thing was with cartoons. You know, you just snuck them in at the beginning of movies when people were watching other movies. You spent the whole morning or whole afternoon at the movies back in the 1920s where there'd be B-movies and things like that. And there'd be things like the news, Pathé News. And in 1927... Disney creates the first feature animation of their own feature length, you know, so we're talking about an hour, which obviously for animation means that's a lot of drawings. I'm sure somebody's going to turn around and say, oh, I think you'll find there was something from Japan three years earlier or whatever. But this movie is generally seen as the first major studio animated feature. Bang. That's a Disney milestone. And they created a whole new animated character for it. And that character was, of course, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. Yeah. Steamboat Willie was a year later, 1928. And that was the first appearance of Mickey. That's the first 
animation with sound, so that beats Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And what's interesting is over the years, Disney could prove they created 100% Mickey Mouse, and so that's why he's the icon of the company, even today in the 21st century. Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, over the years, got contested in and out of legal courts. You don't want to have a mascot that might not eventually be yours anymore, and indeed, they eventually lost the rights to Oswald, and you probably have never heard of him, which tells you that the other creators have not done anything with it, and so Oswald has just been confined to the history annals of animation. So we got Steamboat Willie in 1928, and that's still a very famous, or like the whistling that Mickey Mouse does in that, that's still, still sometimes used in some little snippets before movies. <laughs> And it's that really elastic band type animation that you got in the 1920s. What do I mean by that? So everybody's sort of swaying backwards and forwards and their legs don't really have knees in them. They're just sort of like a curve and their arms are super flexible. Think of like Mr. Tickle if you're British or Cuphead if you play that incredibly hard video game. They absolutely take that beautiful, wonderful, whimsical animation from the 1920s and put an absolutely brutal game behind it. But this is still black and white. So we then come to 1934, and again I go into this a lot more in the animation episode, but in 1934 they start the process of creating Snow White. And Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs came out in 1937. So it took years, and it always takes years with animation to come out. But this was full colour. It was full feature. It was in sound. It was just so far ahead of every other piece of animation out there. It nearly bankrupted Disney Studios. This is a classic example of Walt Disney having a dream, in inverted commas. And again... I mentioned in passing he was born in 1901. So when he and Roy set up this studio in 1923, we're talking about a 22-year-old running an animation company. Now, he'd previously cut his teeth working for other animation studios, so he learned how to do it. But now we've got Snow White being started, being sanctioned in 34. This was the most expensive, most ambitious animation ever. And again, it's being done by a 33-year-old. You know, 11 years into their business, and their business model was short. They'd done one feature-length movie before this, and that's one you've never heard of, and that kind of tells you about it didn't necessarily have a lasting impact. It was a hit, for a record, Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, but, you know, it wasn't Snow White levels of hit, and indeed, Snow White nearly bankrupted the studio. He just poured so much resource and so much experimentation in trying to create new techniques in animation that they simply ran out of cash. So fortunately, oh my goodness, it was a monster hit around the globe. They even got an honorary Oscar, which was seven little Oscars for the Seven Dwarfs. It's lovely and charming, and that's the situation there. Now, there is an initial myth around Disney, and I think like a lot of myths or legends, there's an element of truth to this, but the story is so neatly told it didn't actually happen about this. So, in 1923, 
1922, you got Walt going around trying to get money to set up a business. This is generally what you do. You have to take a loan out so you can buy the stuff, start paying the people, and then they start producing whatever you're making, and then you start making money and you pay off that loan. So that seed money, as it's called nowadays, in particular in regards to online startups, that kind of stuff, but it's the same principle 100 years ago. And allegedly what happened is that Disney went to more than a hundred different banks to try and get a loan. And eventually the final one he went to, the bank manager was just about to retire. So from his perspective, what can they do to me? You know, they can't fire me or anything. I'm leaving next week. And so that bank manager went, okay, this is high risk, but it could work. And if it does, the bank's going to make a load of money out of this. So yeah, I'll give you the loan. And this is used in lots of business books about you should keep persevering. You never know when your luck's going to change. And it's sort of like, okay, but every company doesn't turn out to have the same power as Disney, okay? And Disney itself, as I've just pointed out, 11 years into its existence, nearly went bankrupt over a sort of an obsessive project. Sometimes you have to know when to quit. Sometimes there's a reason why the bank's telling you they're not going to give you the money, because it's a bad idea. I want to create a line of chocolate toasters. No, <laughs> nobody needs a chocolate toaster, okay? But it seems that he did try. It was a hard sell to set up an animation studio. People just didn't see where the money was coming from. And maybe the person he did finally speak to was somebody who was either senior enough to not care or figure it wouldn't destroy their career or somebody close enough to retirement that they wouldn't care. The more you look into it, the more it's hard to find this specific story being told. Anyway, that's sort of like the early years. And once we get Snow White, this absolutely supercharges the company. They are now seen as the world's greatest animation studio. And obviously by 1937, 38, as it sort of rolled out across the world, the storm clouds are gathering over Europe as the cliche goes. And so you get movies like Pinocchio and Dumbo, particularly Dumbo came out during World War II. And there are references in the Marvel movies about how somebody like Captain America will know references, even though he's frozen during World War II, he'll know the references to Wizard of Oz, which has got nothing to do with Disney, and also with Dumbo, because that's how famous it is. But if you like, Dumbo is an early example of one of the problems that Disney has, that things are of their time. I love the way that everybody pretends that they were incredibly socially conscious, even in an era when it wasn't front and center. So I'm going to flat out tell you guys something that's a bit embarrassing now. In Dumbo, Dumbo is an incredibly thin movie. Pinocchio's got much more story to it, so does Snow White. And if you get something like Bambi as well, it's beautifully animated. It was apparently the first film I was ever taken to as a child, and I had to be taken out of it because I kept crying because Mother was shot. But it's wafer thin in terms of its plot. It's really more a meditation of the four seasons that's loosely hung together with this story of Bambi. I digress. The point with Dumbo is, again, it's very wafer-thin plot, but you had people like Salvador Dali watching it and going, the bit where Dumbo gets drunk and he sees the pink elephants on parade. He goes, you know, this is surrealism that I've been trying to capture in my paintings that's done better in an animated movie. So that's, that's a real tip of the hat of somebody who's recognized as an artistic genius tipping his hat to another artistic genius, Walt Disney. And animation doesn't get the same love as something like a painting. And of course, you're dealing with a whole 
army of animator. It's not one person. Walt didn't do all the animation for Snow White, but he was absolutely the creative genius that forced them to work in a more creative, more innovative ways, create new rules to animation. Bravo. Obviously, there's the argument about bullying and long hours, etc. So that's not a good look. But then in Dumbo, first of all, we have a baby getting drunk although it's an elephant, but then at the end, you've got the crows. Real problem. As one African-American said, the crows aren't racist. They are racial depictions, okay? Of course, you know, an animation can't be anything, but the image it is portraying can be racist. But it's racism of ignorance, not of trying to portray something in a sort of terrible way. You know, this was created at the same time as the Nazis, who were the ultimate racists, and they were absolutely portraying horrifically racist images of the Jews because they wanted to annihilate them. Walt Disney wanted no such thing about African-Americans, okay? And I like the song, When I See an Elephant Fly. As a little kid, I could recite it, I thought it was fun, but this is the stuff that starts getting taken out of movies today. Disney has a long back catalogue that has some really problematic movies, and what do you do with this stuff? Dumbo is a classic. That bit has aged very poorly. The idea is children are meant to watch it, so you know, today in 2023 should be showing children negative or racial stereotypes or lazy racial stereotypes? Absolutely not. But, you know, this is the problem and the thing you have to dance around in these situations. Then there's the almost legendary movie, Song of the South. Why is it legendary? Because it's basically impossible to find now. Interestingly, Splash Mountain in Disneyland is referencing the Song of the South. And again, as a kid, I had like Disney tapes of like their most fun songs or whatever. And there's this song called Zippity Doodah, which again, as a small child, I didn't understand the racial insensitivities going on there. And I thought that was a good song. It's basically impossible to find now for even worse reasons than what I just described in Dumbo. Okay, I'm going to move on. By the post-war era, Disney was just dominating the world of animation. But again... Walt wasn't happy with just resting on his laurels. So in 1950, he went to Britain and he created Treasure Island, which was a huge hit. This was their first full live action film. And because he'd got lucky in England filming in like Pinewood Studios, they then created a number of Hollywood films, in inverted commas, that are actually made in, in England, which is still a thing for Disney today in the 21st century. So in 1952, we get Robin Hood and his Merry Men. And again, it's full live action. It gets well reviewed. It's a relatively big hit. Then in 1953, the third film he does in England is The Sword and the Rose. Now this is an action romance about Henry VIII's sister, Mary, okay? This is, if I say Mary Tudor, you're going to start thinking of one of the other Mary Tudors in, in it. And it's, no, this, this is an unrelated one. And this one flopped. It's an example of something that just didn't work with the critics. Also, we're into this sort of time when he creates Fantasia. Fantasia is like a visual poem set in time to some of the greatest pieces of classical music. It's not an overarching story. There's basically no plot to it or dialogue to it but what it is is just scenes with amazing animation 
set to some absolutely classic music like dance of the sugar plum fairies and you get these little mushrooms walking along in water it's just, just beautiful absolutely beautiful but it was a bit surreal it's like elephant life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss hey dave yeah randy since we founded bombas we've always said our socks underwear and t-shirts are super soft any new ideas maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy wait what i got it bombas absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated wow did we just write an ad yes Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It's on parade for like 90 minutes and it was, it was one of these things where everybody thought it was sensational. They recognized the art on this occasion and nobody went to see it. It flopped hard. Now, the interesting thing with the sword and the rose is it played really fast and loose with English history. And so consequently, and we're going to see this happen later on, the problem is when you have a different culture doing your culture, well, you're always going to do your own culture more sensitively. And so particularly in Britain as a whole, this film nobody went to see. And in the rest of the world, nobody cares about Henry VIII's sister, who's that, and in America, it didn't quite work as well. The formula had stopped working. Treasure Islands, made up. Robin Hood, I literally, the first person I ever banned from my Facebook page was somebody so angry at me that I had the audacity to say that Robin Hood was made up. So just to be clear on this, were there bandits around Nottingham in the 12th century? Yes. But the earliest Robin Hood stories are from Edward I's reign, which is a century later, and there is no evidence of a bandit that stole from the rich, gave to the poor, constantly clashed with the Sheriff of Nottingham, who would have been a local legal administrative person, and all these other things have been layered on it. That's legendary. Did banditry exist around Nottingham? Yeah, it's existed around the world, okay? It's just a thing. But Robin Hood, if you stick basically to the legends, we'd all seen Errol Flynn play Robin Hood in a very Hollywoodized version, but we all love that one. So what we've got in the 1950s is a move to the live action, and then 
Walt goes all in and again nearly bankrupts the company on a dream and this time the dream is creating a themed park of rides that sort of emulate and bring to life some parts of these movies which he called Disneyland and he launched in California. Of course there was going to be the much more ambitious Disney World near Orlando in Florida, pretty much diagonally in the opposite direction of the whole country. That's a different story but what I absolutely love about Disneyland is he basically invented the theme park. Now, people are going to turn around and say, hang on, Jem, there were fairs beforehand. There were rides that you could do beforehand. You're right. Fairgrounds existed. A Ferris wheel, for example, was invented in the late 1800s, which is before he was even born. All of these things are true. And there were also things like kind of pleasure gardens or, you know, highly ornate gardens that you would walk around, parks, if you like. But the idea of having one that was open basically 365 days a year, you kept going there, and the rides were actually tied into a story or a story that you might have seen in a movie, that was completely new. And I have friends of the family that work in the second largest theme park chain in the world. Number one is Disney. By a long way, these people work in number two, and they just sort of say the amount of money being spent on a Disney ride is just phenomenal. When you get a brand new event ride, something like Guardians of the Galaxy ride, a hundred million will be spent on one of these rides. And the thing I love about Disney compared to something like a theme park in Britain, for example, there can be some very impressive rides in Britain, but you just stand in a queue and then eventually you go on the ride and then you're out. Whereas in Disney, even when you're queuing, there are themes to it. Like if it's the Star Wars ride, you sort of go through a spaceport and there are animatronic things. Remember someone like C-3PO talking to you as you're standing there and queuing and queuing and queuing. Because they know you're going to be standing there for an hour. So let's keep them vaguely entertained and non-mutinous during that hour. So you could even argue that queuing is part of the ride experience. All of this is down to the vision of Walt. Then we get the first American filmed movie in 1954. So Disneyland opens in 55. So just before that, we get 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which again, as a kid growing up, I loved that film starring Kirk Douglas, who was one of the biggest Hollywood stars of the time. And also in the 50s, we've got the growth of TV and Disney got into TV and started creating nature documentaries and also started repackaging bits of animation and bits of the movies and turned them into TV shows. And then the ultimate was Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, which is kind of like a variety show. It would have a bit of an actual drama in it. The original one was the Ballad of David Crockett. Davy, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. But also you'd actually have kids there and there was the very catchy theme tune M-I-C-K-E-Y-M-O-U-S-E But this was big in America. It didn't exist in the UK. This is before you get syndication of TV shows around the world. Every country had their own TV shows. Videotape was incredibly expensive. And it took a long time for this stuff to actually spread around the world. But certainly if you were in America and you were a kid growing up post-war, you knew about Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. And those kids who appeared on screen were the coolest kids in the world. They were getting like 10 million viewership every day. And it was out every single day. 
And also at this time, they start getting child stars. The two classic ones was Hayley Mills, who as she grew up, she just had an amazing film career, not only in America, but across the globe. But the one that's really counterintuitive is Kurt Russell, because we tend to think of his better movies being things like, well, The Thing in the early 1980s or Big Trouble in Little China. And of course, he's still around today as a sort of elder statesman of the movie world and indeed has appeared in other Disney properties, most notably as Star-Law's dad in Guardians of the Galaxy 2. So it's just weird to see how some of these people started their careers. And particularly in the case of someone like Kurt Russell, seeing him as like a, a young teenager in this stuff is just kind of mind-blowing, but again, shows you that they sort of spot their their tracks, as it were. Then, in 1964, we get one of these brilliant combinations of both live-action and also animated elements. This is 1964's Mary Poppins, which was just a juggernaut in 64. Indeed, it was the biggest grossing movie of the year. And it was, again, a technological marvel. There'd been previously, in things like Song of the South, mixtures of animation and live action, but this was the best people had ever seen. And indeed, I encourage you to do this because there is actually a part of it that is impossible to do in modern terms now. At one point, you see Mary in a cartoon world, and she's got this kind of gauze bow under her hat to keep her hat on her head. Now, the thing is... You can see through that gauze. Now, how is that possible when you've got clearly some kind of blue screen behind it? And the answer is they actually used an orange prism to take out all. So you've got blue in the background, green in the front. And it's like these are the two colors that tend to be taken out. And she's also got this gauze, which is notoriously hard to deal with when you're trying to do the sort of color mixing and dropping in the, the image. And it's because they actually had an orange prismed camera to do this sort of special shots. And those have been lost and nobody knows how to make them anymore. So there's a piece of lost technology in Mary Poppins. But it's another one where, come on, everybody loves it. And I do love the fact that Dick Van Dyke has been on the records apologizing for his accent, saying, look, I had to learn how to sing. I had to learn how to dance. I had to learn the actual script. There was all this technical stuff I had to do because sometimes I'm just standing in a completely blue room and it's like, what's going on here? And with all that in mind, yeah, I didn't have time to do the accent. So I love him to bits by the fact he's willing to recognize that issue. That's 64. So you can see that Disney is just growing and growing. It's got animation. It's got live action. It's got TV now. And then, of course, sadly, in 66, he dies. Now, the last thing that Walt was supervising and what came out after he died was The Jungle Book, which, again, most people sort of see as like one of the last great animated features from the classic era. And Roy Disney died in 1971. And really, it's the 1970s where the rot sets into Disney. It stops being innovative. It gets really lazy and nobody's talking. I mean, for example, here's some stuff from the 70s. How about The Rescuers? As an animated film, it's fine. But there was literally animation being created on TV that was better than it. 
and the rescuers is in no way going to be threatening something like Pinocchio as one of the greatest animated movies of all time. Fox and Hound, another completely forgettable movie that actually came out, I think, in 1980, but it was obviously most of the work was done in the 70s. And then how about this? I remember seeing this in the movies and as a completely unpretentious, I don't know, five or six year old, I thought it was all right. The Cat from Outer Space. That was a film by Disney. That That's how low they'd managed to drop by the 1970s. Then in the 1980s, I'm going to say they were trying again, but they kept trying in the wrong places. So you've got something like The Black Cauldron, which is one of the most expensive animated movies ever made. It was kind of tying into the Dungeons and Dragons thing. It's a bit dark. There isn't any singing in it, really. There's a lot going on in that film, and actually it's aged really well, but it cost a lot of money and it flopped hard at the box office. There was Flight of the Navigator, a live-action film which had some of the first bits of computer-generated imagery in it. The sort of bullet-shaped or shell-type shaped spaceship in it was CGI, which was amazing to see in the mid-1980s. I liked that film, but it was clearly riffing off E.T., and it did right the box office. I'm not going to turn around and say it did brilliantly, but it's not a film. It's one of these films where people are nostalgic of it, but nobody's going to turn around and say, well, that's a stone-cold classic that we've forgotten. Then, of course, there's Tron. Now, that was hugely ambitious, and again, flopped hard. The Great Mouse Detective, one of the first animated movies to use CGI in it so that they could animate some really complex action sequences inside Big Ben, now called the Queen Elizabeth II Tower, by the way. Who are you? What? No. Oh. Basil of Baker Street, my good fellow. But that flopped also at the box office. But in the 1980s, they did have hits as well. Perhaps most importantly, in late 80s, we got Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Live action, family friendly, kind of ambitious. And yeah, that works really well for them. And in the meantime, it almost didn't matter because the Disney parks were expanding and getting millions of visitors every single year, even launched one in Japan, and eventually they would launch one into Europe, Euro Disney near Paris. Anytime one bit of it wasn't working too well, there was another bit of it that could keep some money coming in, stop it from being shuttered. But fundamentally, if you like, from... 1970 to 1985, there were just no big hits. Where's the Cinderella's or Jungle Books or Pinocchio's or Treasure Islands or 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? We need some more IP so that people actually want to come and see some Disney movies. But by the late 80s, as I said, they started to turn things around. But they still had some problems, particularly once we're into the late 90s, early 2000s. Disney recognised that if you're dealing with preschool or very junior school kids, kids up to the age of eight, let's say, loved Disney. But when they wanted to start to get something a bit edgier, they didn't really have anything in their back catalogue that worked for them. Also, Disney was starting to be, they were selling quite hard the idea of the Disney princess range. It was seen more for like young girls than necessarily young boys. This whole thing about representation, well, where am I? Cinderella is lovely. It's an amazing film, but its central character is a girl. And boys would like to see boys doing boy things, okay? And so what happened was in the mid-1990s, there was this 
company called Pixar that was half created by Lucasfilm, half created by Apple. It's an amazing story in its own right, don't have time to go into it. And Pixar basically created a deal with Disney where Disney had first refusals. So they, in other words, they got to see the movie and they could choose to distribute it. Eventually this would lead to them buying Pixar, which for a while made a lot of money and cents, but then things changed. So because of all of this, we start getting the rise of superhero movies, and Disney's just not in the conversation. There are no Disney superheroes. So in 2009, after the huge success of Iron Man, and they were already starting to make some of the other early Marvel movies, in 2009, Disney bought Marvel. So if you like, the original Iron Man is not a Disney film. But by the time you've got Tony Stark and Robert Downey Jr., etc., playing Iron Man, in Avengers, the first Avengers movie, it now is a Disney movie. So it's same guy, sometimes even same directors, but it's now changed hands. I find that really interesting. Then I've got to point out that just a few years later, Disney decides that they're going to go big on sci-fi. I mean, again, with all these superhero movies and science fiction movies, things like Transformers, for example, we don't have our own Transformers. So let's go back to an absolute classic sci-fi movie, John Carter. They spent over 200 million on a John Carter movie. And I bet a bunch of you haven't heard of John Carter and you might not have seen the movie John Carter. So I think you can guess what's going to happen next. It was hugely, hugely expensive and completely underperformed. It was a hard flop. Disney lost at least $100 million. And that is not the idea of making a movie like John Carter. Instead, at some point, got called John Carter of Mars, just so people realize, because John Carter just sounds like a, I don't know, maybe an indie movie about an accountant or something. And it's actually a, a highbrow thing like Star Wars. But that did not work. And so in 2012, they bought Star Wars for over $4 billion. Well, they bought Lucasfilm, technically. So that involved Star Wars, but it also involved Indiana Jones. And so that led to them creating new Star Wars movies. And for a while, this worked really, really well for them until it did. And then I want to come to its absolute peak. By the 2010s, where sometimes cinema is doing so well, they're getting five over a billion dollar movies a year. But in 2019, that went to a whole other level. Nine films grossed more than a billion dollars. And they were Avengers Endgame at 2.7 billion. At the time, it was the biggest grossing movie ever. Avatar ended up beating it again, but that's okay because Disney had bought the company that owned Avatar as well, so they sort of own both of them. Then Lion King at 1.6 million, Frozen 2 at 1.4, Spider-Man Far From Home at 1.1. Now, Spider-Man Far From Home is one of these weird ones where it's actually done by Sony, but there's a profit share with Disney, but Disney only gets a little bit of the money. Most of the money goes to Sony. But then Captain Marvel, 1.1, Toy Story 4, 107, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker, 107, Joker, this is the most profitable one in the list, by the way, and this is a Warner Brothers movie, because it only cost 40 million. They didn't know if people wanted to see a movie about Joker, so they were given not a lot of money, and yet it grossed 1.06. It was only just behind Star Wars Rise of Skywalker, and that movie cost nearly 300 million to make, so you can see how profitable, by comparison, Joker was. And then Aladdin at 104. So that's nine. Like I say, in a good year, you get five. This is the year you get nine. And what's interesting is you can see there with the likes of The Lion King and Aladdin, 
that what they've started to do is go back and take their classic animated movies and turn them into live action. And usually with things like Beauty and the Beast and Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella, these have been big, big, big hits. But now I'm going to come to 2023. Let's come all the way up to now. It's not been a great year for Disney. So for various different reasons, which I'm not going to bother going into, I want to talk to you about four films that have underperformed. In fact, three of them, you can just flat out call them flops, okay? So there was, towards the beginning of the year, Ant-Man Quantumania is the actual title, Ant-Man 3. This was meant to kick off the new phase of Marvel. The Ant-Man films have generally done quite well, but again, this is one they spent a, just a huge dollop of money on, so it did not make its money back. It was also terribly reviewed. I've seen it. It's a mess. And then also Elemental, the new Pixar movie. Now, because of COVID, Pixar had started being put out onto TV. And so I think Elemental is very beautiful, but people are going, the story's all right. And I think a lot of people are going, I'll just wait three months and then I'll get it on Disney+. Plus. Disney+, Plus has cannibalized the audience. You get something like Mulan, which I mentioned before about cultural appropriation in the case of The Sword and the Rose. I knew Mulan was going to flop, not because of COVID, which is one of the reasons why it flopped, but because it was in China, but everybody had to speak American English. But the Chinese don't want to see a movie about themselves with subtitles, with so-so martial arts, because they want really good martial arts, but Disney doesn't want to make it too violent for the American audience. So it's an incredibly average film for the Chinese audience. No, they're not going to go and see it. And they didn't. And then COVID happened. That flopped. So not every single one of these movies that are just repositioning their old animation as live action that happened again this year with Little Mermaid. Again, it was about $250 million was spent on it. And then you've got to include all the advertising and stuff. It didn't even double that back. I mean, it did quite well in the US. The rest of the world just did not care about the Little Mermaid remake. I think all of these remakes, and there's also been Dumbo and Lady and the Tramp and Pinocchio. God, that was awful. That one just went straight to Disney+. Plus. But the only point of making any of these is to make money. These are not artistic endeavors, unlike the original animated movies. And so if you're just going to make a soulless cash grab, it's got to grab the cash. And things like The Little Mermaid just didn't grab the cash. And then also, regrettably, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. It's done okay, but again, this is a movie with a budget of about 300 million. It's basically got to make a billion at the box office to start turning a profit in the theatrical window. It hasn't done that, so you know, sorry, Indy. So what we can see with Disney as a whole, when people start criticizing blockbusters, I want to be quite clear on this. The blockbusters are a bit lazy, but they're there to guarantee some money because if, they, if there's some guaranteed money, then the studios will try something a bit different. And I've heard this argument, and I think it's pretty valid if you want to talk about, again, the sort of pop culture reflection, is it's the mid-budget movies that have shrunk. It's very easy to buy a $2 million indie film because it only costs $2 million. This is why horror films can do so well, because if the budget was $4 million and it made 10 at the cinema, then I've, I've covered my costs and made a bit of money. Fine. I'm, and then there'll be sort of like streaming rentals and things like that. So I, I, it's profitable. Yay. So it's zero risk, basically. Almost any movie at a budget of like two, four million is, is going to turn a profit somehow. OK, but when you're spending 250 million, I need a billion to come in. But if those ones aren't landing, then there's even more anxiety in the industry and those medium-sized budgets. So particularly in the 1990s, think about the courtroom thrillers with perhaps a big star in it, like Tom Cruise, A Few Good Men. Those sorts of films aren't being made anymore. The two-hour thrillers, not action movies, but dramas, if you like. 
they tend to be turned into prestige TV, think Netflix or Amazon Prime, but also are people going to go and see a two-hour drama anymore? If we're going to the movies, I want to see sort of thrills and spills and spectacle, if you like. We're back to basically Disneyland, in essence. There we go. Look, I could have talked about so many other things. You know, the incredibly successful live-action franchise Pirates of the Caribbean, which is literally based. It's not based on a book or a movie. It's literally based on a ride in Disneyland. So that's kind of the snake eating its own tail. We got, you know, a place that promotes movies now being turned into movies. Da-da-da-da-da. Disney's going to be fine. The visitor numbers are back up after COVID to all the Disney lands, etc., the theme parks. Some movies aren't working, some are. Disney Plus is generating quite a lot of money, but obviously they have to keep spending money to create content for it, so that's a whole other story. But Disney, like Warner Brothers, may not be having a great year this year, but they'll ride out the storm, and they'll have another year when they manage to have more than $5 billion films in the same year. But without Disney, think about how much of your pop culture references would have disappeared for better or for worse. That's it for me. Another episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.